0: Welcome into to Chasing Interesting. I'm Craig Hoffman, and I am really excited for our guest today. He might be the smartest person who's ever been on this podcast, which is saying something, because we've had some really exceptional, brilliant guests on this pod, including last week's Courtney Emerson. God, she was fantastic. And uh, if you are finding this podcast for the first time, then I think you will really enjoy last week's podcast as well. Uh, if you're listening for... Jim Goldgeier and and the conversation that we're about to have, uh, and you like smart people talking about democracy, you will love last week's conversation with Courtney as well. Um, So as for Jim, today's guest, as I said, might be the smartest person we've ever had on the podcast. Uh, He... (laughs) He's certainly the most qualified and the most decorated uh, when it comes to the academic world. Jim is a professor of international relations and served as dean of the School of International Service at American University in D.C. from 2011 to 2017. He's also a Robert Bosch Senior Visiting Fellow at the Center of the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution, which is a really, really high-level organization he was a visiting senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations from 2017 to 2019. He held the inaugural Library of Congress chair in U.S.-Russia Relations at the John W. Kluge Center. He was a poli-sci professor at GW, also taught at Cornell, has public policy appointments all over the board, uh, director of Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council, uh, Whitney Shepherdson, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. You get it. The Henry A. Kissinger, there's a name for you, the Henry A. Kissinger chair at the Library of Congress. His incredible resume is just mind-blowing in terms of the number of places where he has been able to study and impart his knowledge on the world, literally on the world. And, um, my connection to Jim, you'll, you'll never guess if you've been listening to the podcast recently, how I wound up with Jim on it. That's right. It was Rachel, uh, my girlfriend who studied foreign policy in college, um, and actually wrote a book on foreign policy in college. Jim was one of the people who looked at the book and helped her edit the book and sat for interviews for the book. And just as a cool story to tell you how cool of a guy Jim is, Rachel hadn't talked to him basically since. And that was eight years ago because we're getting old now. Uh, So that was eight years ago. And she sends him an email and says, hey, haven't talked to you in eight years, but like my boyfriend hosts a podcast and we think you'd be a great guest. Would you be willing to to talk to him? Without, Without any hesitation, without any further information, Jim's just like, yeah, this sounds great. When, when, when do you want to go? And here we are. So I, I'm so appreciative to Jim for his time. Um, to give you a little bit more pointed background on him besides a laundry list of accomplishments, um, he is someone who studies democracy. And obviously right now with the impeachment trial, that is extremely relevant. But he, he studies democracy through the lens of America's place in the world. And through the last four years, especially during the Trump era, but really in the last 20 years, and going back the last thirty years through the fall of the Soviet Union, America's place in the world has shifted dramatically, up and down. And right now, it's in a, it's in a lull, straight up. It just is. And so, our ability as Americans to or as an American government, really, um, more than individual citizens. Although I think the actions we take as citizens matter a lot, uh, things like protests, uh, you know, of the Muslim ban, for instance, early in the Trump years, I think that mattered on a national level. It said the citizens of America do not stand necessarily for what their government stands for. Then obviously we elected a new government, which gives us some standing in the world again, or, or helps increase on some level. But the ability for us to spread freedom and to go to places that are committing human rights abuses and, and tell them to stop and to have the moral high ground to do that um, depends on how we're acting ourselves here in this country. You can't tell someone to do something. You can't you, know, you can't be, have a, a cigarette hanging out of your lip and tell someone else to stop smoking. And, and that's a lot of what America has been doing because the way we've been acting the last, especially four years is insane. And so, I wanted to talk to Jim about all of that um and his academic knowledge, his experiential knowledge of how we got to this point, what we can do about it, and what it would mean to fix it and so that was the crux of the conversation, especially uh, for me on the heels of reading samantha Power's book, who the former u n ambassador under President Obama, and her reading about how many things she was able to accomplish with her team and with the u.s government in terms of their ability to do good in parts of the world and i referenced this in the interview with jim in parts of the world that none of us ever heard about little things that got done that mattered a lot to the people that were impacted but really never crossed our radar here in america so that is a huge 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 facet of this as well in my desire to talk to jim so without further ado enough blabbing for me here's my conversation with Jim Goldgeier, uh, official title, smartest person to ever be on this podcast. Jim, thanks so much for joining me here on Chasing Interesting. Your resume is so incredibly impressive. It is extensively long, which leads me to uh, my first question, which is simply when you introduce yourself to people and try to describe what you do, how do you define yourself in the work that you do?
1: Well, I am uh, an academic first, and I've I've taught at three universities, uh, Cornell, George Washington, and now American University. Uh, but I'm an academic uh, scholar of international relations with a strong interest in connecting my academic work to the policy community and to the broader public. And so I've spent a lot of time over the years at different think tanks in Washington that have allowed me to do that currently uh, at the Brookings Institution.
0: How did you get interested in this kind of work before we get into the work itself?
1: So the real inspiration was a professor at Stanford. Uh, I was a PhD student at UC Berkeley, but uh, there was a lot of connection between the programs uh, at Berkeley and Stanford. And there was a professor named Alexander George, and he uh, did. He had he had spent the first part of his career at Rand, uh, the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, and then he had gone to Stanford as a professor. And he wrote a number of books in the national security space on different issues like deterrence and coercive diplomacy, and you know other issues, Cold War related issues, and had also done a book called, uh, or he did a book, it was after I was in graduate school, probably in the 1990s at some point, he did a book called Bridging the Gap, which was designed to bridge the academic work with what policymakers are interested in. And I, I took a class from him when I was a graduate student, and he just really emphasized the importance of trying to pursue research questions and answer them that might be of interest to people trying to solve actual problems as opposed to, just, (laughs) you know, writing about theory.
0: Right. Philosophy in action, if you will. Um, Was there, as you started to do that work, I'm I'm definitely interested in people who serve the public in any kind of way, whether it's in kind of the advisory role that, um, and that's, that's a very loose term, but the advisory role that, that you serve, whether someone who is directly involved as a politician, like what is the formative experience that kind of shapes your worldview? Um, and I just, I, just got done reading Barack Obama's memoir and Samantha Power's memoir in the last month and reading about some of their early experiences and how they shaped how they saw the world and, and how that turned into the way they acted as politicians, for instance, was to me fascinating for you as someone who thinks about these issues and for someone who has studied them extensively. Was there a formative, um, whether it was something you were studying or, or, or experience in your own life that made you kind of form the worldview that you have and you, you bring to the work?
1: So I'll give you two things. One, things that were happening in the world that were important to me, and then one, a major experience that was important. In terms of happening in the world, I, I was doing a dissertation at Berkeley, as I mentioned, uh, that I started, at, I started in graduate school in 1984, and I finished in 1990. And I was in a program on the Soviet Union, and that's where the Berkeley-Stanford connection came in. There were Stanford professors like Condoleezza Rice who were involved mm-hmm. in the program and a number of great professors at Berkeley. And so I'm studying the Soviet Union and you know I, basically my first year of graduate school, Mikhail Gorbachev came to power uh, in March of my first year of school in, in the Soviet Union. And I finished in 1990 right after the Berlin Wall had fallen and the year before uh, the Soviet Union itself collapsed. And so I had been steeped in all of this, you know, Cold War learning and it was over. Right. <laughs> and I became obsessed with really trying to think about how do we understand a US role in the world after the Cold War? And you know, we're still grappling with that 30 years later. So so I so that has that has you know, really uh, been my my greatest interest since, uh, since the end of the Cold War and the end of my time in graduate school. Uh, the Council of Foreign Relations runs a program called the International Affairs Fellowship Program. And for academics, it's designed to give you a year in the government to help you understand how government works in a way that you simply cannot just from reading books. Mm-hmm. And Uh, I was lucky enough to get an international affairs fellowship. And in 1995, when I was a assistant professor at George Washington, I had a 12 month fellowship in government. And I started off at the State Department and then moved over to the National Security Council staff uh, and was working on Russia issues. And it was a very exciting time to be working on Russia issues, especially because in 1996, it was there was a Russian presidential campaign, and Boris Yeltsin was reelected as the president of Russia, and uh, he was running against uh, a communist challenger, Gennady Zuganov. And so, uh, you know, it, there were U.S. had real stakes in mm-hmm. the outcome, and there was a lot of interest. The president was very interested in in that election, and of course, then his own. Uh, I, I came out of the government. Uh, in time for the beginning of the fall semester at the beginning of September. So uh, I wasn't there when when President Clinton was reelected, but I, I was there through the Yeltsin part. And just being in government that year, uh, working with people, a lot of, I worked, because I was working on Russia issues, uh, I was working with a lot of career foreign service officers, both at state and at the NSC. Uh, incredibly, uh you know, I just I just developed an incredible imag- admiration for these career foreign service officers, just so talented, so knowledgeable, really helped me understand, you know, sort of the inner workings of the foreign policy machinery. And so when I came out of that year, uh, it really shaped the kinds of questions that I wanted to ask as a scholar and shaped the way I taught, uh, you know, trying to make sure that I had short policy memo type writing assignments for my students to try to help them. Mm. I had struggled so much with, with policy writing as an academic that I wanted to make sure they didn't go through the same struggle as I did.
0: That's really enlightening. And the the real reason I wanted to have you on and and why Rachel wanted to have you look at the book is when she was writing it eight years ago um, is that expertise that you developed in, in thinking about America's role in the world. And I know uh, a lot of that recently has focused on what we're doing here or not doing here in terms of our own democracy, uh, which is literally on trial right now in in some ways. And so I kind of just wanted to explore that space with you and, and go into some bigger thought topics and then kind of dive in from there. And the first like big picture thing I, I wanted to kind of, I don't even know if this will end in a question or more of like a, a discussion prompt, if you will. Um, but This idea of American exceptionalism and that America's democracy is the shining beacon of what it should look like and... I've thought a lot about it uh, over the last, you know, forget just the last couple of weeks since the insurrection at the Capitol and um, uh, everything going on with this particular election. But even going back years now with some of uh, the highlights on racial inequality in America and and whose vote counts and whose doesn't and and some of the ways in which uh, marginalized communities have been forced to really struggle to have their votes be made uh, or their, their votes counted, whether by gerrymandering or suppressed, et cetera, et cetera. And how much of that idea that America's democracy is one to model after was even ever true in the first place? Because that's how we sell ourselves to the world as this, you know, to use the phrase again, this beacon of democracy. So I guess my question would ultimately be how much of that uh, was true comparatively to the rest of the world? And, And how much have we as a country really kind of been lying to ourselves all along?
1: So it's a great question. And it, you know, it comes back to sort of this, you know, the end of the Cold War shaping my own efforts to trying to think about these problems, because, because of the way the Cold War ended, we grew overconfident in ourselves, and what the end of the Cold War meant. And, you know, I think we have a lot more humility now, I hope we do. But the end of the Cold War was, we won, they lost, our system's the best, that's why we won. And everybody should be like us. And that really was the U.S. view in the 1990s. And it it wasn't just us saying, it, it was also fostered by a lot of others around the world who had lived in communist systems, who were eager for support from America, advice from America, and to be more like America. And this was especially true in Central and Eastern Europe. The places, the peoples behind the Iron Curtain, in Poland and Hungary and Czech Republic, Estonia, and elsewhere. You know, now they have this chance of freedom and they're looking at the US and basically, okay, we want to be like you, and we want you to also protect us, you know, in case mm. something happens in the future and you know we saw democracy flare we talk a lot about universal values we talk a lot about you know the the universal strive for freedom and we felt that in the early 1990s cuz you just looked around at south africa at chile mongolia you know and you you see you know back when long lines to vote were at somebody else were some other country not ours You know, you looked at these long lines and realized, oh, my gosh, like people really will do anything to cast their ballot and to be able to have a voice in their future. And it was about them. But we thought it was all about us. Mm. And. We. We did ignore fundamental problems in our own political system. Uh, we ignored the fact that there wasn't really the kind of balance between the executive and legislative branches that the founders had intended. The president grew, grew com- increasingly unconstrained over time. This you know, this isn't a Trump phenomenon. I mean presidents have become more and more powerful uh, over recent decades, and Congress, you know, weaker, uh, in that equation, uh, you know the the distortion of the electoral college, uh, you know that to, to people in other parts of the world who live in democracies looking at the electoral college just you know what is that? like the doesn't the person with the most votes just win? <laughs> right No, right right I mean uh, and then of course at the center of everything is race as as you know I mean there are people who've understood that for a long time. Right. People who are the targets of the kind of violence that we've seen uh, over time in in our country's history, the efforts to suppress their voice and their vote. Uh, And, you know, over time, more and more people uh, became aware of these things as well, became aware of the way in which the filibuster in the Senate, you know, was not some great virtuous thing that was developed to try to make sure that minority in the Senate had a chance to real debate and opportunities to, to shape legislation, but as a way to block civil rights. Mm -hmm. That's what the filibuster was developed. The filibuster was developed to, you know, for the purpose of white supremacy. Right. Uh, so, you know, these kinds of features of the system, uh, I think, you know, people, uh, people are now more aware of. And the question, of course, is, is where do we go from here and how do we, you know, this, is, this still is a great country, but, you know, as Biden has, says, has said, President Biden has said, you know, we, we aspire to live up to our ideals and, you know, we should continue to try to do that.
0: Yeah, the, the phrase that I love that has been used a lot by, whether it's President Biden, uh, it was used a lot by President Obama, going back, I think, all the way to his 04 speech, um, and I'm sure he used it before then, but the the pursuit of a more perfect union um, and and that idea. Um, is more of the how we got here question, how would you characterize how these things, the electoral college, the filibuster, these things that, in my opinion, uh, and I think it's an inarguable opinion, I I would start, you know, I would dare to say that they're facts Um, that you just described that things like the electoral college and the filibuster, especially the filibuster, were explicitly racist and race motivated um, things. How would you characterize, though, how they got baked into our system? Uh, and, And what I mean by that is like, were they done like explicitly at the time as like, we're doing this to suppress the rights of black people, or were they always kind of coded in the ways that the defense of them now often is?
1: Well, I think when you look at the way in which these institutions, you know, the, I mean, you know, the constitution of course, was a compromise, um, Mm -hmm. big States, small States, uh, free States, slave owning States. And, you know, everybody wanted the opportunity, you know, to make sure that nobody else was gonna dominate them. Uh, And so, you know, to try, and that's, that's the challenge. How do you make sure that everybody does have a voice and the majority just, you know, doesn't just trample over a minority, but how do you make sure that what the minority is doing um, isn't being done at the expense of Uh, a particular population. And, you know, it's easy to talk about the filibuster in highfalutin terms of, you know, this should be the minority in the Senate, you know, should be able to ensure that there's serious debate. But when you look at the use of the filibuster from you know, reconstruction to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I mean, the filibri- the filibuster during the during the 20th century, um, up until the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I mean, it was used exclusively for the purposes of ensuring that there would not be civil rights legislation. Um, and so, uh, you know, the filibuster is not in the Constitution. I and mean, it was developed, it was developed later. And uh, there were southern senators segregationists who were very clear about what the purpose was and you know that their goal was to you know as former alabama governor george wallace said segregation today segregation tomorrow segregation forever it was either george wallace or strom thurmond but ba- you know former uh, former senator thurmond i mean two
0: peas in a pod really
1: yeah. yeah i mean you know i mean they, they were you know, this was the. Um, you know, they were very clear about it, uh, and I, I think you know there are a number of new, you know, a lot of new books and articles about why why we need to move beyond that, and and that it's not a getting rid of the filibuster isn't a way of killing debate. It's a way of of ensuring that you can't have a a small group that stymies the will of the majority as it has on so on issue after issue and the electoral college you know this is an issue of of fairness Uh, you know one person one vote i mean everybody in this country should have a vote that's equal to everybody else's and it shouldn't be that there there are some places where a vote matters more than in other places when it comes to electing the president of the united states
0: on the filibuster, would you agree that the eliminating it would actually result in more compromise because the minority couldn't just obstruct and they would actually have to play ball?
1: I, you know, I, I think that is the feeling of people who are more expert on the Senate than I am. And, uh, I, I, you know, the Senate is supposed to be the world's greatest deliberative body, <laughs> uh, which it has not really been. Uh, and it would be great to see it be the world's greatest deliberative body.
0: So that then expands out to where American democracy is now. Um, some of the light that has been shined on its deficiencies and how that then plays our hand relative to the rest of the world or how, how our hand plays in the rest of the world. Let's, let's take the last, really, I'll say like the last 20 years. And, and the reason I'll put it, the last 20 years is the internet has been gone from something that was being used very minimally by a small group of people to something that is massively available. And the spread of information is unlike anything we've ever seen before. So as we've discovered these things in part because of the internet, those discoveries have now spread around the world. So over that period how has America's influence changed, not just because of that spread of information, but because of everything from the Iraq war uh, and how that was seen globally to the different leaders that we've had at the presidential level and other important posts? How, how would you describe, like if, if you were to zoom out and look at the trend from, say, 2000 to where we are now, how would you describe that trend of America's influence and specifically its, its ability to advance freedom and democracy in the world?
1: Well, we've seen two big things in the last 20 years. First, the loss of legitimacy of the United States in the world due to its own actions. You know, it's sort of own goal after own goal.
0: We Uh, we never were that good at soccer. And just, you know, really, we should have learned our lesson.
1: 2003 Iraq War. Right. And then the photos of the torture at Abu Ghraib uh, and, you know, going to war. Uh, it would have been a lot different if Saddam Hussein had really had weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but since he didn't, then the rationale for the war uh, completely fell apart. And the those in the world who had opposed it um, uh, looked at the United States, and uh, it really cost the United States in terms of its legitimacy. That was followed by the 2008-2009 financial crisis you go back to some period like the 1990s. Financial crisis arose in the 1990s. There was a peso crisis, Mexican peso crisis at the end of uh, 94, beginning of 95. Uh, There was, uh, or perhaps the following year, around 1995, there was a a crisis, uh, Mexican peso crisis. The Asian financial crisis of 1997, 1998. The United States was the solver of those problems. The United States was the country that solved global financial crises. 2008, 2009, we caused it. We unleashed it on the world with our crisis, with with what we had done in our housing and banking sectors and, you know, subprime mortgages and all of that. So legitimacy took a hit. And, you know, it took a hit again, thanks to Donald Trump and especially the January 6th insurrection. You know, if you're out there in the world looking at the United States, you're thinking, what is going on there? So that's one, the sort of the the things we've done to reduce the kind of legitimacy that we had in the world coming out of the end of the Cold War. The second is the rise of other powers, um, especially China, uh, which, you know, is in a much stronger position than it was 20 years ago. And also Russia, which is not China, but it's still stronger than it was 20 years ago. And when you look at those two major authoritarian states, you know, the message say to, they say they deliver to their people is look at the United States. Why would you want to live like that? Uh, you know, the challenge for us, because I don't want to live in a system like the Chinese or the Russian sure. system. I, you know, yeah, I want to live in-
0: perfect, but I, I like it better than that one.
1: Right? We want to live in American democracy, but what we have to be able to demonstrate to ourselves and the rest of the world is that we have a democracy that can function, that we have a democracy that when a pandemic hits, that we can address it. Uh, That we're not, you know, the worst at addressing it, but that we're the best at addressing it, right? That, I mean, here we are, the vaccines developed in the United States, uh, fantastic. Now we got to get them out into everybody's arms. Um, I mean, you know, we need to be showing, whether it's a pandemic or inequality, racism, infrastructure, you know, building roads, uh, ensuring that we have better schools, that we have a system of government that can provide for its citizens. And to the extent that we can do that, then people will believe that in the value of democracy. If we fail at doing that, then the message, certainly the message from the authoritarians out there is, hey, you know, nobody wants to, nobody wants a system that's broken.
0: Right. Yeah. I want to circle back to that in a second and some of the incentives uh, or how we change the incentives to to achieve those goals and to have that better system and, and to create a, a world or a country where, both sides of the aisle or whatever political parties, if it involves more than two political parties, great, uh, are actually working towards the same goal. But I'd love to to tap into your knowledge on a deeper level here, because I feel like a lot of what you just said, I think a lot of people, especially someone who's going to listen to a podcast like this, like on some level understands. But what I found interesting specifically about reading uh, Sam Power's book was when she would tell these little asides about something that she did with the UN or even in her previous, job as as a senior advisor type where she was able to make an impact in some country somewhere that never made the news. It was something that I, as someone who even paid attention, was never aware of that ever happened. So, Can you give us an example or two of a place in the world where either something bad happened and America should have been able to step in and help and wasn't able to because of that loss of legitimacy? legitimacy or even an opportunity cost situation where there wasn't necessarily something bad happened where you were not coming in and and playing savior, but there was something kind of maybe brewing that America could have gone in and made a situation better. um, But they, they weren't able to, because we didn't have the standing to go and and do that good or in a previous era we might have. Well, you
1: know, I think I think what we're really talking about is just the erosion of our position over time in a way that especially has engendered concern among our allies that we're just not as reliable as we used to be. And so, you know, they have to try to think for themselves about what what that means for them. I mean, there there are lots of problems in the world that don't have a solution and that you know that the United States isn't going to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the question is: Are we are are we creating situations that makes things worse? The the you know Saddam Hussein was a horrible leader. Well, we made the situation worse uh, in Iraq by by going to war there. Uh, which, you know, unleashed a whole set of issues uh, and strengthened Iran. Um, you know, we weren't going uh, to, I don't think we we're going to stop the Syrian civil war, uh, but clearly we were unable to play um, a, you know, a role in addressing that conflict in any meaningful way. And you just, you, just, you look at the turmoil across the Middle East and the refugee flows that that led to into Europe, <coughs> and the impact then that that had on Europe, including uh, leading to the United Kingdom's decision to uh, leave the European Union. You know, I mean, there's the there's the Iraq type situation, which we 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 created a worse situation by going to war. And then there are those like the Syrian civil war where you look at it and you think, well, are there things that we could have done differently? Are there ways that we could have brought countries together in a way that might have limited that that, that situation? Maybe not. I mean, it's quite possible that, you know, I mean, and we shouldn't overestimate uh, our own leverage. Uh, you know, we haven't addressed. Um, uh, we haven't addressed. In any effective way, the North Korean nuclear program. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not clear uh, that this administration will be any more successful in at that than previous administrations. We we did play a major role in the agreement that led Iran to stop pursuing its nuclear weapons. But then we had a president who decided that he didn't like the agreement and his policy could be better, and now we're in a worse we're in a worse situation with Iran uh, than we were before. But I I think it's really mainly about right now about what does it take to get back to credibility among our allies? They still, you know, we're still the strongest country in the world. They're still hugely dependent on us. Uh, They want us to be a reliable ally. Uh, Our power is enhanced by having alliances with these other, uh, you know, especially our, our NATO allies and our East Asian allies, you know these these major democracies uh, that our alliance with our alliances with them help enhance our power. But they have to be thinking, well, how do we know that policies that Joe Biden initiates during his presidency, how do we know that that's going to stick after 2025? Because what happens if Trump or somebody like him comes back into office?
0: Right. So <laughs> I guess that leads us here. What what is the answer to that? Because one of the beauties of American democracy is that it can change, um, that, that it is supposed to reflect, um, it's supposed to reflect what is going on in the country that is supposed to be representative. And if moods and opinions change in the country, the leadership is, is going to have to, in theory, be responsive. Uh, obviously if representatives are picking their voters, instead of voters picking the representatives and some of the other issues that are happening, uh, that can, that can change. But, um, how do we go about ensuring that we can secure our democracy at home? And I know you've written about uh, the, the idea of a democracy summit. Forget the, a global one. We need a domestic one. Um, but how do, how do we go about changing, securing our democracy at home and doing it in a way that there is trust built that, okay, yes, we can have changes in administrations, even from party to party, without that continuity but still have reliability uh, amongst our allies or still be reliable to our allies uh, as we move forward?
1: Well, I think this gets back to our earlier discussion about the balance of power between the executive and legislative branches and, and the role of the Congress, uh, which in foreign policy has simply withered over time. I mean, it's just not the Congress is not what it was 30 years ago. 40 years ago on foreign policy. It just does not have the same kind of constraining power. I mean, you know, yes, uh, government should reflect the will of the people, but one person shouldn't be able to just launch the country into a different direction without any real constraints. And, you know, look at what we've seen. I mean, President Obama signed a nuclear deal with Iran, Paris Climate Accord, um, uh, you know, a Trans-Pacific Partnership economic agreement. Donald Trump came in, forget it, we're leaving all of these things. Joe Biden comes in, we rejoined the Paris Climate Accord on day one. He wants to get back to, you know, some kind of version of the, of the Iran nuclear deal. It's like, wow, like, are we really going to just bounce back and forth like this every time there's a new president? Um, mm-hmm. I think the answer really is, and I, I don't know how, how it can be achieved. I mean, it's going to be a long-term process. Congress has to be able to come back as a as a serious body in foreign policy. Their oversight function has declined. The amount of expertise has declined. There is a a small group of of individuals who were uh, elected in twenty eighteen in the House of Representatives who have national security experience, and you know, if they stay in Congress over time, they'll. You know, continue to play a bigger and bigger role, but uh, you know, the Congress really needs to to engage in oversight, engage in uh, you know, ha- develop the expertise, have the resources to engage with the president on foreign policy, and of course, you know, they're being able to to pursue greater bipartisanship within Congress. You know, this we talk about bipartisanship now in the context of well, it's the president working with the opposite party in Congress. But, you know, there's a lot that can be done if the two parties in Congress work together uh, to strengthen the congressional role. And I I think that's going to be critical over time.
0: Yeah. The the problem in the middle there that you you identified, though, is like, how does that how does that happen? And it's just so hard to imagine if you have I mean, like Josh Hawley might have been Ivy League educated, but I don't consider him a serious person. And if you have Josh Hollies and Lindsey Graham's and these people that are capable of being serious people, um, but... Are, are, seem to have no interest in doing it. And, and I think the Syria example is, is a great one because uh, it is very well documented that Obama wanted to do more there and he decided that was going to be the one where he tried to get Congress back involved in that process and he goes to Congress and they say no. Uh, and in many cases, it was purely political because they they feared blowback and, and the worst thing that could happen to a congressperson or a senator is they're no longer a congressperson or a senator. So do you have, uh, as, as you've stated, Study democracies around the world? Like, do you have any suggestions on how we create better incentive structures so that uh, Congress becomes, a, I can't believe I'm asking this, this is a real question I'm about to say out loud. How do we make Congress a serious body again? But that's really the question.
1: Well, I, I do think at this point in time, it comes down to whether or not the Republican Party, which is divided and has some individuals who support democracy in the United States and some who do not. I I mean, the question is, is the Republican Party going to be a party that continues to support American democracy? I mean, we just can't continue if one of our political parties is not committed to the basic functions of democracy. And that's that's on full display this week. You know, being in the thrall of a cult uh, is not going to get us where we need to be. And you're right. I mean, the worst thing is that there are smart people who are taking advantage of the situation for their own political benefit. And it's a sad thing to say that the worst thing for a congressman or senator is no longer being a member of Congress or a senator. I mean, why is that the worst thing? Like, If you lose, you lose. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as long as you stood by your principles. I mean, I realize that's, you know, it's a not very naive sounding thing to say, but would any of us really say that we would stay in a job no matter what? Um, Because, you know, I mean, is there any job that's really worth that? Well, especially
0: one that's supposed to be centered around service.
1: Especially one that's supposed to be centered around service. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's time. I mean, look, we've seen some members and we should, we should, um, you know, we, we should praise them to the hilt. Uh, Those Republicans who are willing to stand up and say, this is not right. This is not the party that I signed up for. This is not the party that I want to see going forward Uh, and who are trying to Uh, ensure that the Republican party is not the party that is opposed to American democracy. People like uh, Liz Cheney, you know, I mean, these, these shouldn't be, have to be courageous stands, but they are courageous stands when you, when you realize the kind of uh, attacks and, and especially, you know, the thing that I just really marveled at since the election in November, this should have been a huge celebration of American democracy. I mean, here we were in the middle of a pandemic. We had record turnout. We had Mm -hmm. more people voting for the Republican and the Democratic nominees for president than we've ever had. And an election in which there was no fraud. Mm -hmm. I mean, we should be celebrating that we pulled that off. And we pulled it off because of these officials at the state and local level. Look at these officials that we've seen in states like Arizona and Georgia. Yeah. Who, you know, they followed the law despite the pressure that they were getting from the president and people in their own party in their own states. And it's pretty extraordinary what they've done. And, you know, it's the thing that should give us hope. But the question is, like, how do we make sure there are more of those people and fewer of the kind of people that would raise their fist and encourage people to go storm the Capitol?
0: Yeah. And can the people who are on a on our brave side of democracy, we'll call it, do, do those with power on the side realize the urgency of that? And that that is, to me, one of the biggest questions. And when I look at something like the the For the People Act or the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and realize that there's a hard deadline of getting those in place, you know, before these 2022 midterms and really before the 2022 districts are drawn based off the census, that uh, all of this stuff could be um, seriously up in the air. Because even if there's there's more of us than there are of them. And when I say us, that's not just like Democrats or progressives or liberals or whoever. I, don't, I have no idea how you, you identify yourself politically. But those of us who believe that democracy is a good thing, that, that's how I define the us in this case, that right. even if there are more of us than there are of them, if their votes carry more weight, ultimately, that doesn't matter. So the urgency is certainly there. So I, you've been so gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. So I will wrap up with a, a very simple question uh, and try to end on a high note here with all of the things that we just talked about, what does give you hope and is, or is, are you just in an academic reality where you've studied enough and you go, I, I don't. Um, cause I think that that'd be a fair answer too.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because, um, when people would ask me what I thought was going to happen between the election and the inauguration, I said, I'm always optimistic about America. So, uh, It was a free and fair election. I was confident that the electors would meet on December 14th and that Joe Biden had 306 electoral votes. I was confident that the Congress would meet on January 6th and certify. And I was confident that Joe Biden would be inaugurated on January 20th as a result of a free and fair election that he won. Um, Now that I'm watching the videos this week uh, in the impeachment trial, uh, I am, You know, it's pretty harrowing to realize that we had a president of the United States that was willing to incite people to do violence, to, uh, you know, potentially murder the other people in the line of succession, his vice president, the Speaker of the House. I, I mean, it's just, you know, it's very harrowing. But to end on a high note, I still believe the majority of the people want democracy, not what we saw in the mob going into the capitol. And so you know I, it's not going to be easy and we have to try to address it. We have to try to address the fact that we've got white supremacists who you know in our in our military in our police forces, um, you know these are issues that are the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is now trying to address, uh, within the military, we see police chiefs around the country trying to address this within their forces. So I'll always be optimistic about America, uh, but um, uh, uh, but it the the what we've seen in the impeachment trial is pretty harrowing.
0: Without question, this was fantastic. I appreciate your time immensely and uh, hopefully at some point down the line, once it is uh, either we are out of this terrible pandemic or when the weather's warm enough that people can go sit outside and enjoy a beverage, we can, we can do that at some point down the road.
1: I look forward to it. Thanks for having me.